Hi there and welcome to Get Started, the beginner's guide to the stock market by My Wall Street. I'm James and I'm the head of content and publishing with My Wall Street. In this five-part podcast series, I'm joined by Rory, the head analyst here at My Wall Street, as we explore how anyone can make their first move towards becoming a successful investor by following just a few simple steps. The episodes in this podcast are based on My Wall Street's Learn app, a free educational tool that has been downloaded more than 2 million times worldwide. As you listen along, it would be helpful to download the Learn app for yourself and follow along with the lessons as we get into them in more depth and give you some extra tips and insights. If you listen into these five episodes, less than three hours in total, I can guarantee you that you'll have everything you need to just, as the title says, get started. Hi folks, not only do we want to help you get started investing with this educational podcast, but we want to go a step further and get you closer to your first portfolio of stocks. We've been picking market-beating stocks for over 10 years now with a strategy based on long-term mindful investing. So we're giving you access to one free stock from our extensive library that we've built and added to over the years. This is an easy-to-digest report of a high-quality business we believe has all the characteristics to be a long-term winner. That's right, a free stock pick just for you. Simply head over to mywallstreet.com to find out more or click the link in the show notes for this episode. So Rory, in the last episode, we talked about the reasons why you should invest, the power of compounding, how to get yourself in financial order to start investing and how to set your goals and timeline. In this episode, I want to delve into some of the most commonly used terms that we see in the market and the concepts that investors are likely to encounter. And I just want to make sure we kind of explain them fully and go through what they mean. So let's start off with the most obvious one, Rory. What is a stock? Yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, a, stock, a stock or a share represents a piece of ownership in a company. Something that people somehow forget an awful lot of the time when they get involved in investing is that, you know, it's not just something that you buy on Robinhood and hope it goes up. You know, it actually yeah. represents ownership in an actual business that is out there providing goods or services to paying customers, right? Um, the vast majority of businesses in the world are, are private and their shares are only available to kind of a select group of people. Um, but a lot, a lot of businesses, especially as they get bigger, become publicly traded. And that means that anyone can purchase stock in that company. Yeah. Um, and then every day that the market is open, these stocks are traded back and forth amongst shareholders. Some days the stock will go up in value. Some days it'll go down. Over the short term, the price of the stock kind of changes just based on sentiment. So, you know, it can be either sentiment towards the company itself. Sometimes people are just thinking, oh, I don't think it's great a company today as it was yesterday. Uh, sometimes it can be kind of broader market sentiment. So people think the economy is not performing very well. So that'll make all stocks go down. Or sometimes it'll yeah. be a certain sector. Sometimes people think the technology sector is very highly valued at the moment. Let's, it shouldn't be as highly valued as it is. Oh, so that's kind of what happens over the over the short term or the short to medium term. Over the long term, the price of stock will change based on the company's performance. So the company performs well, it increases sales, it collects profits, etc. The stock will rise over time. So they'll increase their earnings and the stock will rise along with those earnings. That's the opposite of businesses that perform badly, of course. If business doesn't perform well, then the stock goes down. And I think that's such an important concept to understand. And I think it really feeds into, again, that long-term buy and hold mindset we often talk about is that, you know, these aren't just just digital things you're buying through Robinhood or whatever your broker is. These are actual parts of a company. And that's the importance in 
understanding who the company is and what they do um believing in the company believing you know especially if you're holding for the long term that in 5 10 15 years that the company is going to be bigger and more valuable than it is today it, it's it's really kind of a mind shift in in telling yourself that you're not just buying this digital asset you're buying a piece of a company yeah it's not a lottery ticket it's not like you know it's it's something that actually is affected by a bunch of people, like a, a company of people that are that are working every day, and um, the better they perform, the better the stock will perform over the long yeah. term. So that that so that gives you, if you even understand that, you've instantly got an edge over an awful lot of novice investors who don't understand this. You literally just take, like, you know, someone throws a ticker symbol at them, for example, and they go and they buy that ticker symbol just you know on the advice that someone says oh that's going to go up you know yeah. <laughs> so understanding that there is a business behind it understanding what the business does is fundamental to being a good investor absolutely well you mentioned ticker symbols there so let's move on to that what is a ticker symbol so yeah all publicly traded companies are assigned a ticker symbol like a little abbreviation that makes it easy to identify a company and um, sometimes they're exactly the same as the brand name so ibm for example is the ticker symbol for the company ibm uh, sometimes they kind of just kind of squeeze the name together into a kind of three or four letter abbreviation. So Goog, G-O-O-G <laughs> is Google. Uh, A-M-Z-N-M-Z-N is Amazon. Uh, so, the, you know, in, investors can instantly see when a new story is about Amazon or Google, when they're going through Twitter, they can see the, the ticker symbol or they can see it in the market. Yeah. Um, sometimes companies try to be kind of clever, like uh, Harley Davidson's ticker symbol is Hog. And uh, Anheuser Busch's ticker symbol is Bud because they make yeah. Budweiser. What's the What's the best ticker symbol you've ever seen? <laughs> best ticker symbol I've ever seen. That's a That's a hard one. I can't even. I think the Harley Davidson one is pretty good. Hog. The Harley Davidson one. The um the ticker symbol for Steinway pianos. Yeah. Is LVB. Ludwig van Beethoven. Beethoven. Yeah. <laughs> That's a that good one. Good. Yeah. You could definitely have a bit of fun with ticker symbols. I suppose it tells you a lot about the company, depending on how much fun they have with their ticker symbol. Yeah. And this is a question I've always wondered, and maybe you don't have to answer this, and maybe we're going to have to edit this out of the podcast. But why is Apple's ticker symbol? Why does it have two A's? I don't, you know, I don't know the actual answer. I assume because APPL was taken. Yeah. But it's something that drove me mad when I first started investing because I used to constantly type in APPL and I ended up with this other company I can't even remember what the company was but it wasn't Apple anyway yeah and it always took me a couple of beats before I realized I was on the wrong page yeah um, absolutely there's definitely some confusion I always get confused between um Ford and Facebook as well because I always assume that Facebook has the single F symbol and not just FB yeah <laughs> there's also I mean there's plenty of examples by the way of stocks that have shot up because people have assumed it's a company that it's not. Yeah. Um, very famously, last year and the year before, there was a company, a very small penny stock, that had the ticker symbol Zoom, Z-O-O-M. And people thought it was the ticker symbol for Zoom, the company, which the, the video conferencing company, which their ticker symbol was actually ZM. So yeah. before you invest in stock, please make sure you're investing in the right ticker symbol <laughs> that you haven't just assumed that's the company that's not. Absolutely. So... Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, the vast majority of companies in the world are private companies, and it's it's only in these public companies that we can invest in. Talk to me a bit about how a company goes public and the idea of a public offering. Yes, like I said, the vast majority of businesses that you see, the corner shop on the, the side of the road, the most most stores that you walk by are probably private companies. Um, they're owned by a kind of select group of shareholders who maybe founded the company or, or bought the company at some point and are running it themselves. But at some point, 
some businesses, not all, but a, a lot of businesses decide they want to become publicly traded companies. Um, and that means that any member of the public is allowed to purchase their shares. And um, to do this, you have to fill out quite a lot of paperwork. You have to take a lot of regulatory boxes. But if they do all that, they'll eventually complete what's called an initial public offering or IPO. Yeah. After that, the company will start, will essentially sell a percentage of their shares to the public. And those shares will therefore will be publicly traded. Uh, now, it's worth noting that's not the only way for a business to become publicly traded. In the last few years, a lot of other avenues have become popular. Um, direct listings have become popular and, spa- and something called SPACs, S-P-A-Cs, have become very popular. But I suppose for this podcast, let's stick to IPOs because yeah. the, for the moment, they are the most widely used method, kind of the historical method of people, of companies becoming uh, public. Um, now, how a company prices its IPO is very interesting. So, this, so what typically happens is that a company will hire what's called an underwriter. Uh, that's usually one of the bigger banks. And the underwriter essentially takes an in-depth look at the business. Sometimes they don't go too in-depth as we found over the past, but they, they're supposed to take an in-depth look at the business and kind of use a combination of their own analysis as well as kind of gauging demand from big investors out there, the kind of big funds, mm. to try and come up with a price that they feel is appropriate for the company. Uh, And then when it comes to IPO day, there's like this kind of always element of excitement, whether the business will either exceed its IPO price or whether it will kind of be disappointing and the shares will decline. And that that price or the like exceeding or or falling below the IPO price, that is all based on on demand and how much people want to, to get a piece of this company, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen various examples over the years of companies that have underpriced their IPO. So they've, you know, they've gone out with a price of $20 a share and it's rocketed up in the first yeah. day. It's gone up, you know, 100% sometimes, 200% sometimes. So that's that's underpricing an IPO. And that, that it sounds good, but it's not actually that good because what's happened is the company has sold its shares for less than people were willing to spend, okay. pay for them. And, that, and they've ended up kind of leaving a lot of money on the table. And the opposite is also not great, though, is when, you know, if you price to $20 and they they go out to try and sell them and no one wants to buy them for $20 and suddenly going out at like $15. Yeah, that's a, that's an example where they've overpriced their IPO or, or the, the market just hasn't responded to it. And that's always kind of a bad, it's bad PR, really. It doesn't look yeah. very good for the company if, if there's a headline in the Wall Street Journal saying, you know, no one wants this company shares on the first day of trading. Yeah, it's not good. It's not a good no. look. So, so that's the process of kind of going public and the kind of the nuts and bolts of it. But I suppose the next question is, is why would a company want to go public? We've seen, I suppose, over the last few years as well, that there's been massive funding through like venture capitalists for private companies and companies kind of leave it longer and longer. You know, there was a time, I think 10 years ago, where a unicorn was a private company worth $1 billion. Unicorns are 10 a penny now. So why why do companies actually want to go public? Yeah, and that term unicorn was was coined because it was such a rare thing to see. Uh, yeah. Now it's not rare at all. So yeah, going back, I mean, the original idea was you're building a business, right? And when you start a business, you, you get funding from, you know, private sources. Maybe your friends and family help you out. Maybe a bank gives you a loan. Maybe there's kind of private investors who give you a bit of money to get you go off, uh, to get you going. But usually at some point, you want you need more money than that, more money than you can amass from the kind of private markets or from, or from people, you know. And so the original idea of going public was, right, we need much more money and the public is a great 
big, huge source of financing. So so that was kind of the original idea for an IPO. An IPO essentially is a, is a, is a massive fundraising event, remember, you know, business, it's, it's, it's going out and saying, here, here's a big chunk of our company. Will you buy it and give us money? And, you know, with mm. that money, the business can basically do anything they want. Um, it's not like going to a bank where they're where they're borrowing money and, and they're taking on debt. They they don't have to pay this back. This is money yeah. that they have on their balance sheet. Then they can use it to you know grow the company, invest back in the business. They could use it to acquire a competitor. They could they could use it to pay off debt that they previously um, uh, raised, or they could use it to let them expand their workforce. You know bring in a whole new bunch of salespeople, try and try and grow revenue. It's also a kind of exit event for those who invested in the business early on. So, you know, if, if you're a private investor and you invest in this tiny little business uh, and then, you know, 10 years go past, you, you there's no opportunity for you to sell those shares, even though the company's growing because it's privately held. It's hard, you know, you can potentially sell them. It's very hard to find someone to kind of buy them off you. To yeah, do it there's, in a there's private not an exchange you can go to. Exactly. So, so for founders and for people who back the company at the start, they wouldn't have much opportunity to sell shares they've accumulated for early employees who may have accumulated shares. This is a kind of moment when once they go public, they will they will soon be able to kind of sell their shares and, and make money off all the hard work that they've put in over the years. It also has other benefits as well. It makes raising money in the future much easier. You know, once you're mm. public, you can do second offerings. You can issue more shares and sell them uh, to raise more money. You can also have much easier access to debt. You know, you go into a bank, they're going to give you, they're going to be a lot happier to, to lend you money if you're a publicly traded company because they can see all your accounts instantly and they know how the business is performing on a regular basis. Yeah, and then there's kind of a prestige factor as well. Like it's a real kind of milestone achievement in the life of a business, in the life of an entrepreneur, that to to, to start a business from nothing, to build it up, and to bring it public, and get to ring the bell on the on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq is is a huge kind of prestige moment. What are some of the downsides of being a public company, Rory? I mean, there's plenty of downsides. <laughs> One of the downsides is that you're constantly have to perform to what the public yeah. expects, to what analysts expect. There was one business founder, a guy, he, he founded a company called Blue Bottle Coffee. People probably know this company. And, and they were all set to do a big IPO and ended up selling themselves privately to, uh, I think it was Kellogg or maybe Nescafe or one of the consumer packaged goods companies. And he was asked why he went, he sold, he sold the company rather than bring in an IPO. And he said, from everything I've heard about being a uh, director of a public company, it's basically like going to hell without dying. So there's... <laughs> <laughs> There's some people who just don't want to be CEOs of a public company because yeah. there is this huge pressure. You're constantly being watched by investors and any misstep will be punished and you always have to answer questions. And, it, you know, the public sector is quite short term minded as well. If, you know, you you have to answer questions every quarter. If you don't meet, meet your numbers every quarter, people start asking questions. So for more long term minded business people, uh, probably being part of that being CEO of a public company might be quite difficult, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm thinking of HBO's succession and it's particularly the second uh, series where they're they're kind of in trouble and, and trying to get the shareholders on board and trying to, you know, buy a company or get a buyout. And just, it, obviously that's an extreme example, but it definitely makes me never want to be CEO <laughs> of a publicly listed company anyway. Remember folks, head on over to mywallstreet.com to get access to our free stock analysis. We've picked one outstanding business from our extensive back catalogue and we're giving it to you for free. Let's move on then. And these are two terms that often get conflated. So we talk about the stock market as a whole, but there's also specific exchanges on the market. Can you talk to me a little bit about this, the major stock exchanges on the US market? 
Yeah, so stock exchange you think of as kind of like a giant supermarket for shares, right? Yes. It's, it's where buyers and sellers come together to trade the shares they own. Um, obviously, this used to be done in person, like actually on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. There are people face-to-face talking to each other, trading shares. And now it's all digital. We trade stocks across, you know, m- multiple countries, multiple continents. You can trade them. Uh, you don't have to be there in person. Um the stock market just means all the stock exchanges that are located in a geographic area. So in the United States, for example, you got two major exchanges. One is called the New York Stock Exchange. The other is called the NASDAQ. And these form this US stock market. Uh, now, there's no real difference that individual investors need to be aware of in terms of New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, except kind of traditionally that technology companies typically listed on the NASDAQ. Um, yeah. That's not always the case. Twitter, for example, is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. But if you were to hear someone say it was a bad day for the NASDAQ, that would typically mean technology stocks that had a bad day. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the difference between kind of the stock market and the stock exchange. The stock market is all the exchanges within that market. And to, to throw another term in there that people often confuse and use interchangeably, we also have stock indexes. So things like the S&P 500, the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ, confusingly enough. So what is the difference? What is a stock index and how does it differ from the stock exchange? An index is just a collection of, of stocks. And okay. it, 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 it's basically like, you know, building your own personal list of stocks could be like an index of stocks. It's usually based on a certain criteria. Yeah. There are like, there are loads of indices or indexes out there. Some are very specific. Like you could have an index for just health technology companies. Yeah. That would, that would just look at all the stocks that are focused on health technology. But then there's big, massive ones, probably the two most well-known are Dow Jones Industrial Average, yep. just commonly known as the Dow, or Standard & Poor's 500, which is also known as the S&P 500. Um, I think for new investors, it's best to just ignore the Dow. It's a pretty antiquated way of, of looking at stocks and measuring stocks. Um, I'll get into the nuts and bolts of why, but the, the best thing to focus on in terms of talking about indexes is the S&P 500, which is a selection of the 500 biggest companies in the US. Uh, so when people talk about the market, and I've got my bunny ears now, when people <laughs> talk about the market, they typically talk about the S&P 500. And when you're talking about investors talk about beating the market, that means beating the S&P 500 over yeah. the course of a year. Uh, now, investors can either index, uh, investors can, by the way, just by mar- the market. They don't yeah. need to invest in individual stocks. You can invest through what are called index funds, or you can invest with, in what's called ETFs, which are ex- exchange-traded funds, which are very similar to index funds. And that allows you to buy the entire market. So you buy just a massive basket of 500 shares, for example, if you're investing in the in the S&P 500. So if you were to buy a share in, say, an index tracking the S&P 500, you're, you're in reality buying one single share and as part of that share, you have a little bit of ownership in all of the companies in the S&P 500. Is that correct? That's correct. And the biggest companies will be the highest weighted within that share and the smallest companies yeah. will be the, the, the smallest weighted. And this is a very important thing to understand because a lot of people aren't really cut out to be individual investors. You know, they don't have either the time it takes to kind of, you know, look into companies and, and read about companies or they just don't have the interest. They have yeah. no interest in, in this kind of stuff. Um, and for those people, you know, in, that doesn't mean you can't invest. You in, can invest in the S&P 500, uh, which is, you know, 
is probably the, the way that most people should be investing. Uh, it's historically provided very stable long-term returns. Like I said, if you're holding long-term, you'll typically get make about 10% a year without the risk associated of picking and choosing individual stocks. And 10%, again, doesn't sound like an awful lot, but 10% means your money doubles kind of every seven years. That's great. I mean, doubling your money every seven years for really not much work at all, just buying an index fund, putting money into it regularly and let it compounding over time is a very good option for an awful lot of people. Absolutely. So say you don't want to invest in S&P 500, say you do want to be an individual stock picker. One of the first things we often look at is the size of a company. I think that is, you know, one of the first kind of metrics you look at. How big is this company? Is it a big, massive company like Apple or Amazon or is it a smaller company like iRobot, for example? How, how do you assess the size of a company and the scale of a company? Yeah, so we measure the size of a company by what's called market capitalization. Um, now, this is very important to remember, and it's something that drives me totally crazy because <laughs> I seem to have to explain it every day. The price of the stock in dollar amounts does not tell you how big a company is. Okay. The size of the company, its market capitalization, is a function of the stock's price, but also the amount of shares that are out there. So that means that a company with a share price of $10 could be a much bigger company than one with a share price of $100. Okay. Um, and this is something that new investors get confused with all the time. And I understand why it's confusing. You would think it would, it would be, you know, if you were just coming into this with no knowledge, prior knowledge, you would think the company that's worth, that has a $100 share price would be 10 times bigger than the company that's a $10 share price. But that's not the case at all. Okay. It's, it, it's based not only on the stock price, but on how many shares are out there. So if there's an awful lot of shares out there, if there's billions of shares out there versus a company that has, you know, a couple of million shares out there, obviously the one with the more shares is going to be the bigger company that that's that's a very important point and I, yeah i agree i think that's that's probably one of the most common mistakes new investors make they go and they look at you know amazon for example and see the the share prices roughly around you know a thousand bucks a share or probably way more at the moment and they assume that that's a value of a price but they don't take into account that how much of Amazon or, or what portion of Amazon as a company is publicly floated and how many shares are out there. So if the individual share price isn't a reflection of a company's size or value and market cap is, how where do we find the market cap? How do we figure out what the market cap is? Uh, you can, so I mean, if you want to go old school, you can go and find out how many shares there are and multiply that by the share price. Um, so every company has to put out reports every quarter. They'll tell you how many shares they have out there mm. and you multiply that by the current share price although it's much easier yahoo finance or any of the kind of finance websites or a lot of stock apps will just kind of do that calculation for you and yeah. they'll, they'll give you the market capitalization of the business but again going back to that idea that the the dollar amount does not indicate how much how much value there is in the business you know just because a stock is selling at five dollars does not mean it's a cheap stock yeah and just because a, 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 a stock is selling at $5,000 does not mean it's an expensive stock. It, the, the nominal value of the stock actually tells you very little about the company. So you need to go out there, you need to find how many shares exist, or like I said, use something like Yahoo Finance or My Wall Street or any of the financial apps will tell you the market capitalization. And it's important to know the size of the business because in general, now this is very general, small companies tend to be a lot more volatile than large companies. Okay. It's not always true sometimes, but in general, small companies tend to make big moves and big companies tend to make small moves. And, and this makes sense if you think about it, right? If you have a business worth $100 billion and it loses $5 billion in value, you've lost 5%. 
of, of your total, right? Yeah. If you have a company that's worth $10 billion and it loses $5 billion in value, you've lost 50% of your value. Yeah. And it's you know, like the, the, the same value has been lost, but the percentage difference is much is much bigger. So it's important to know the size of the business where you're investing in it, largely because you need to kind of be aware of the risks involved. It's a very kind of first point measure of risk. The smaller companies tend to have a lot more upside because they're smaller and smaller businesses have more room to grow than larger companies, but they also have much more risk. So, you know, let's take Apple for an example. It would take a very long time for it to double its size because it's so large already. Yeah. Whereas a much smaller company, you know, something like Beyond Meat, for example, I think it's worth $10 billion. That could, do- that could double its size much easier because, you know, to double its size, it only has to grow $10 billion, whereas Apple has to grow, you know, to another $2 trillion. Absolutely. So a general rule of thumb, I suppose, is that, you know, smaller companies are, are more high risk, high reward. Larger companies are, are, again, generally more stable, but not always. And there's ex- exceptions, of course. Tesla doesn't trade, as you know, is a very large business that trades like a small cap business. Shares yeah. are very volatile. And then, you know, you might find some very small kind of regional banks that only have a market cap of $2 billion, but they're very, you know, stable businesses and they won't go up or down, you know, 10% a day. Yeah. So the next concept I want to talk about, um, I'm, I'm thinking precisely of Leonardo DiCaprio as to blame for this because this is one of the most common questions we get here in my Wall Street and it's of course about penny stocks. Rory what are penny stocks and are they a way that I can make a million dollars in a day? Yeah we get an awful lot of people coming to us being like I watched the wolf of Wall Street (laughs) and now I want to buy penny stocks not understanding that it was a uh, it was supposed to be a cautionary tale yeah uh, that's not say you make <laughs> money in stock you should not do this <laughs> yeah you know you're not leonardo DiCaprio in this scenario you're the mug he's stealing money from um yeah. so yeah penny stocks are typically stocks that are under a five under five dollars in nominal value they're usually for pennies or even fractions of a penny um, they're typically not listed on the main exchanges. They're sold over the counter. So in this kind of unregulated grey space, uh, you know, the, literally the guys on the phone in, in the Wolf of Wall Street calling you because you've you've seen an ad on a, in the back of a, a magazine. Penny stocks really seem to appeal to new investors because they think that a company with a share price of only a few pennies can't possibly get any cheaper. Yeah. All right, and we've and, you know we're going back to what I said previously. The stock price doesn't indicate anything, but penny stocks are not regulated the way most stocks are. You know, it's essentially scouts' honor. People, the the the, the owners don't have to provide much financial information. Mm. No one's checking if it's true or not. Um, and what they because of their because of the way they just are and the the the, the, the low nominal values of the stock they tend to be incredibly volatile yeah and they tend to be highly susceptible to market manipulation right um because again there's very little regulation there's not there's not many people buying the shares so even a few people buying the shares could send the stock up quite a lot right yeah now there's plenty of people in places like Reddit and Twitter and other message boards who essentially scam unsuspecting investors to try and convince them to invest in in penny stocks and what they do is let's say like I'm the scammer here I have a large position in a penny stock and I go onto one of these boards and I claim that I've done an awful lot of research and that this stock is about to take off right and because the stock is so thinly traded I could actually go myself buy a lot of shares in the business and the stock would go up right because yeah. there's there's not many people buying the share so even a few people buying it could send it could set it going up and then I go back to the message board and I say look I told you look I said it was going to go up and it's gone up 
then they convince people to get on board other people start buying in the stock starts going up very 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 fast and the person the original person who, who held a huge amount of the stock dumps it instantly yeah. and the stock just plummets like goes from you can drop you know 70 80 percent in a matter of minutes so they've locked in their profits and a lot of other people are left holding the bag pretty much exactly and you know this happens all the time it goes on message it happens on a message board it's, it's called a pump and dump it's been around for decades i come across young investors regularly who've been fooled into this stuff and have lost an awful lot of money and um, it's important that you you know don't trust people on these <laughs> message boards. The don't first trust thing, people right? on the internet. Like, don't trust people on the internet is very good, solid advice. Another piece of solid advice is if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Yeah. If someone on a message board is telling you you're going to make, you know, 20x your money by just putting this in, that doesn't sound reasonable, does it? That's not something that usually happens in the world. So don't believe that it's going to happen. You can still make very attractive returns on stocks that are listed on the main exchanges. There's, you know, we have companies in our app that have gone up 30x. You know, mm. it hasn't happened in the course of two days, but it's happened over the course of a couple of years. That's a very attractive way to invest in, in the stock market. So there is big money to be made outside the world of penny stocks, which is a lot safer and a lot more... A, a lot you know better suited to young investors so basic message is just avoid them yeah just avoid them cool let's move on to another term then and this is actually a style of investing i suppose a lot of vest- investors are very interested in which is dividends and dividends investing so we talked about this in the last podcast the idea that there are two ways you can make money from investing in stocks it's the appreciation of the underlying asset or receiving dividends from the company whose stock you own Talk to me a bit more about dividends. What are they and how can you employ them into your strategy as an investor? So dividends are regular payouts that are made by some companies, not all companies, but some companies to their shareholders. They typically do them about once a quarter. Yep. And um, there's some there's some investors, plenty of investors out there actually, who won't invest in a business that doesn't pay dividends. Uh Typically, older investors tend to, to to like this idea of dividends. They kind of think of, think of it as a way to ensure management kind of acts responsibly if they if they have to pay out a certain percentage of, of the profits every year that they won't yeah. go off and make kind of mad acquisitions or pay themselves crazy bonuses and stuff like that. And that's a reasonable kind of opinion to have. Uh, however, for kind of smaller companies in growth mode, you'll find they typically don't pay dividends. Um, and, and why is this? Because what they're what they're doing is essentially they're reinvesting the money back into the business to in order to keep it growing. You know, when you so if you're a business and you're left at the end of the year with a big chunk of profits, you need to do something with them, right? You need to leave them there. So mm. one thing you can do is you can kind of hold, you can put cash onto your balance sheet. That's the kind of way to you know, steady, you know, the, make, ship steady the ship, make sure there's some cash there for future investment or, or to acquire a company maybe in the future or or just kind of rainy day kind of money. So that's one mm. thing you can do. Um, you can invest back into the business. So you can take that money. You can, you know, put it into new factories, new technology development, hire hire more salespeople. That's reinvesting the the uh, the money back into the company, or you can pay out a dividend. So growth te- companies typically favour the reinvest the money yeah. uh, and let's keep growing this business. You know, there a lot of growth companies, particular kind of the high growth tech companies aren't even profitable yet. So they take they, they take all the money that they've accumulated, all the cash they've accumulated and pump it back into the company in order to get to that level of profitability. So, I mean, I would be of the opinion that younger investors, you know, just starting out, you're really trying to build 
capital when you're when you're starting out. You don't really need dividends. It shouldn't really be a massive part of your investing thesis because you want that business to keep investing. You know, you're investing yeah. in the company to get bigger and bigger and hopefully to to be a massive company 20, 30 years down the line. So you don't want them giving out that these dividends, especially if you're a kind of, you know, small time shareholder, the dividend is not going to be a huge amount of money to you. Um, We do get, unfortunately, people coming in asking, you know, they've heard about dividends and they want this kind of passive income so they don't have to work a regular job for the rest of their lives. That would be great if it was possible. But unfortunately, you would need to be investing a huge amount of money up front in order to be make a li- to make a living off your dividends. Uh, you know, the, the most you're going to get from a decent company in terms of dividends is probably about 5%, 5% yeah. a year. Uh, the Coca-Cola company currently pays about 3%. Um, so, you know, if you invested a million dollars into the Coca-Cola company, you'd be receiving something like $30,000 a year in dividends. That's okay. pre-tax. You need to pay taxes on that. That's not enough to live off. So and that's yeah. with a million dollars to get started. Um, and if you see companies that are giving out really high dividends, like 12%, 15% dividends, I would stay away from those companies. That's typically a, a big red flag. And that the company is trying to kind of lure investors in because the company is struggling in another way. Um, Dividends kind of become a lot more important as you kind of get to kind of retirement age. uh, When you're going to be living off your investments for the next 20 years, you want that regular stream of income. And so older investors typically look for solid companies that are paying dividends because not they're getting their 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 yearly payout. And then there's also kind of a chance that the stock will appreciate in value as well. Okay, interesting. So let's move on to another concept. And this is one I think a lot of people struggle with and, and we see from time to time is when a company splits its stock. Um, what does this mean? And is it something an investor should be worried about? It actually means very little. It gets a huge amount of press <laughs> attention. Um, so yeah, as mentioned previously, the value of a business is its stock price multiplied by the number of shares that are out there. Yeah. Occasionally, a business can just decide to split their stock. The reason they do this is it's usually to make the shares more accessible to investors. So I'll give the example. Amazon shares are currently trading at over $3,000, right? For young investors who might want to invest in Amazon, that's an awful lot of money. I was really off with my estimation earlier. I thought they were about $1,000. Should you have me paying attention to the rapid rise of Amazon, James? Um, So they might decide to split those shares, let's say 10 to 1. And that would mean that Everyone who had one share of Amazon would now have 10 shares of Amazon, but the shares would only cost $300. And now, you know, this is kind of more, it was more important maybe kind of 10 years ago. And because today we have fractional shares are much more common and you can buy, you know, percentages of shares. You could buy $50 worth of Amazon. You you don't need to buy an entire share. But back in the day, you did need to buy full individual shares and stock splits were quite important to maintain accessibility for individual investors but again it doesn't change anything right it's simply think of it like a pizza okay you can split a pizza into six slices or you can split it into 18 slices it's still the same amount of pizza so the company is just basically going from having one set of shares to having you know three times as many shares at a different price or whatever whatever ratio they choose to split their shares at and now, companies can also do something called reverse stock splits. Yeah. Uh, so this is this typically happens when a company has fallen below the legal threshold for being on a certain exchange. So they can they can cha- they can go for you know every ten shares that someone has now they only have one share. Yeah. Uh, and the stock price goes up ten x. Uh, 
it's that is usually a big red flag okay. if you see a company doing a reverse stock split it typically means they're in quite a bit of trouble and this is kind of a last ditch effort to not be kicked off the certain exchange that they're on okay so normal stock splits nothing to be too current concerned about reverse stock splits maybe do a bit more digging and see what's going on there let's go on then and you know when you're actually buying a stock you know you can there, there's many different ways in which you can purchase a stock can you talk to me about some of these different order types and some of the different ways you can buy a stock yeah so you, i mean you're buying a stock you're doing it through a brokerage yeah and the most common most straightforward way of buying a stock is through what's called a market order and the market order essentially you just says you just say to your broker hey buy this stock at the best available price. So your broker goes, right, it looks at the market, it sees what price the stock's at, and it buys the stock for you. Yeah. So it, 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 it guarantees execution, right? You're just buying it at the price that the market's selling it at. And this is, I think, the best, this is the way most investors should go about investing, by the way, long-term investors in particular. A limit order is a bit more specific. So it would say, uh, buy this stock for me at this price or lower. Okay, so if, you know, if you wanted to buy a share of Apple, but you didn't want to pay anything over $100 for it, the, you could say a limit order of $100. Now, your broker could then look at the market and let's say Apple stock is at $101. He wouldn't buy the stock for you. He would yeah. wait until it dropped below the $100 in order to buy it. And um, that means that it might not happen. You might not actually buy the shares of Apple. It might never go below $100. Uh, then there's also things called a stop market order, which means that you could tell your broker essentially to sell a stock once it hits a certain price. So essentially triggering a sale. And a lot of people think of stock market orders, they think they're good because they think it protects them from a serious drop. You know, now this isn't necessarily true. You know, for example, you could have, let's say, let's use Apple again. You could own shares of Apple and you could say, set a stop market order for $100. And, and you're thinking that that means that you'll never lose it'll never go below $100 for you. That's not how it works. If some major negative news came out, uh, say, you know, iPhones are killing people or something, uh, the stock could rapidly drop. It could drop down to $70 in the space of a couple of seconds. Your broker would end up selling it at $70. You know, he wouldn't be able to sell at $100. It would have dropped far too fast for him to, to make that sale. So rather than kind of protecting you from a downturn sometimes these these kind of stock market orders can just lock you into a loss because you never know the stock might rebound within the next kind of hour or something you know maybe the maybe it was a rumor that wasn't true and that comes out and the stock rockets back up you'll have you'll have been locked into a loss so in terms of orders you know first of all the more complex you make them the the more the fees will be to to execute those orders yeah Um, and if you're buying stocks long term like we suggest you know, market orders really are the best. You're not a couple of percentage points here or there isn't going to make a massive difference if you're investing in a company over five to ten years. So the idea of you know only buying it if it hits this particular price or selling it if it goes this particular price, uh, it it overcomplicates things. And I'd say, especially if you're starting out, you're learning the ropes. Just go with market orders. Okay, cool. The last two concepts I want to cover are two things that have kind of been in the news quite recently, especially with the the rise of like low cost brokerages and and um certain things going on in the market the first one is the idea of margins and margins account um can you explain what a margin is and i suppose what the real danger behind investing on a margin is margin accounts are a term used in the world of investing to talk about investing with money that you've borrowed and so you typically if you've a brokerage your broker will possibly offer you the chance to invest on margin which is funds borrowed from them 
Um, so like a loan, pretty much. Yeah, it's a loan. And your broker will undoubtedly tell you that you should be doing this because that's how a lot of brokerages make money. They make money off the interest of the, the loan that they're, they're selling you. Um, mm. What's quite dangerous about this, first of all, you just shouldn't be borrowing money that you, to invest in the stock market to begin with. So you should be borrowing money for things that are very important that you can't possibly pay for yourself, like a mortgage. You know, that's, that's, what, that's when it comes to borrowing money, not for investing in the stock market. Um, but one of the main reasons you shouldn't be borrowing, uh, investing on margin is that you lose control of, of your account, essentially. If the stocks drop below a certain value, the broker has a right to sell all your holdings in order to recoup your, their losses. Um, and now this can leave you with very, very large losses that you may that may have been able yeah. to recover if you were able to hold on to your positions. Uh, so, you know, if, if there was a sudden crash, you know, for example, your broker could just sell your entire portfolio, liquidate your entire portfolio, get back their money and leave you with whatever the pittance is that's left. Whereas if you're a long-term buy and hold investor, you see the drop, it's painful, but you know, you're buying for the long-term, you wait it out. And if you look at something like, you know, the financial crash of 2008, that was very painful for a lot of investors, but then it recovered, had a massive recovery over the next 10, 11 years. Um, a lot of people who have bought on margin during that time will have lost everything they had in that in, during that crash. So best advice yeah. is never borrow money to invest in the stock market. Stay away from margin accounts. It, it's just not good, especially for new investors who don't really understand the market dynamics at play. Absolutely. And then the last thing I want to cover is the idea of short selling. This is something that was talked quite a lot about at the start of 2021 with the whole GameStop um debacle i suppose is the Fiasco. best word for it <laughs> <laughs> what, what is short selling and, and how does it lead to things like what happened with games short selling is a mechanism through which you can bet against a company uh so people many people have probably seen the movie the big short that was a, a film about them betting against yeah. the u.s economy uh shorting yeah it's been in the news an awful lot recently you know, when you, when you buy a stock and you think it's going to go up, that means you're long a company. That's the lingo that we use. Yeah. When you bet that a stock is going down, it means that you're short the company. Uh, now, not don't want to get too much into the weeds, but just quickly, the mechanism for shorting a stock is that essentially your broker will allow you to borrow the stock from another investor yeah. at a certain price and this is all done on margin which we've just discussed don't don't do, don't use margin Bad thing. so so you borrow the stock let's say you borrow the stock from another investor at a hundred dollars at some point you have to buy the stock to give it back to them right just this is all like this is all happening in the, in the ether. This <laughs> no actual isn't actually happening this is just yeah. how you how you imagine it happening so you borrow the stock of someone at a hundred dollars at some point you have to return it to them if the st if the, if the stock drops to fifty dollars, let's say, yeah, you get to, you can buy the stock at fifty dollars and return it to the original shareholder, and you pocket the difference. Okay, You've, you take the fifty dollars. If the stock goes up fifty dollars, you have to pay for it. You have to pay one hundred and fifty dollars for the stock to return it to the to the share to the original shareholder, and you've lost fifty dollars, essentially. So that's that's what's called covering your short, and you yeah. have to cover your short. So you either have to cover it at a higher price or a lower price. Shorting is very risky. It's not advisable for novice investors at all. It gets an awful lot of bad rap, but it's actually an important part of kind of how the market works. Their shorts would have to exist in order to maintain the kind of how the market operates. But for novice investors, people who haven't been investing long, definitely not advisable. You know, think about this. You know, when you purchase a stock, the most you can lose is a hundred percent, right? The, the lowest you can go is to zero. However, if you short a stock, your losses are theoretically infinite. 
yeah. you know, because there's no market cap on how high a stock can go. Now, in practice, that would never happen because your broker would intervene and force you to cover your, your losses. But just think of it in that in, in that sense, that that's a reason why you shouldn't be shorting stocks. Yeah. We often here at my Wall Street, we kind of rail against people who say that investing is gambling and, you know, especially long-term investing. We don't believe it's gambling. But when you talk about stuff like that, you can definitely see there are elements to the market and, and to investing that are definitely gambling. Absolutely. Yeah, you can definitely treat the stock market like a casino. This is one thing yeah. you shouldn't do, especially if you're a new investor, because you don't really understand how things operate. You don't understand how the market moves to certain things. So starting off, definitely, you know, stick to buying common equities, straight stocks in companies, stick to going along. Don't borrow money to invest. Don't try and trade stocks and stay away from penny stocks some pretty kind of standard start off advice absolutely so that's the end of today's episode we covered everything from what a stock actually is to the process through which companies go public to the danger of investing on margin and the danger of short selling too in the next episode we're going to talk about some of the things that the my wall street analyst team look for in a great investment make sure you don't miss out on this one that's it for today's episode. If you like what you're hearing and want to level up your investing game, take the first step by heading over to mywallstreet.com to get access to our free stock analysis.